All right. Greetings and good evening, one and all. If there is anybody who is joining us, you are welcome to the teaching of God's gospel. And I determined to do a message on the matter of the gospel and the Old Testament, the hermeneutics of how to properly interpret the Old Testament stories, because many a time what we see from a lot of preachers, even people who profess to be sovereign grace and reform people, they have a tendency to go to the Old Testament to preach moralistic messages, messages that do not help in the matter of understanding the gospel. And about two days ago, I made a post to that effect that preachers are preaching a moralistic gospel from the Old Testament, and I do not believe that is the correct use of those Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures, just as the new, were given to declare, to teach the matter of Christ. And we have a very wonderful message tonight, if the Lord would grant me the ability to speak and also grant you the ears to hear. I wrote this message in, in the afternoon today. I pretty much spent the whole day writing messages today. <laughs> so God be praised for giving me strength. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing uh, for the sake of uh, the message, for the sake of my preaching and for the sake of your hearing. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this hour that you've given us, that you've appointed for us to go into your scriptures, that we may hear the testimony of Christ, the things that were hidden to the wise and the prudent, but have now been revealed to the babes and the suckling. I pray that your Holy Spirit gives me utterance in the truth, and that he also opens the minds of those that have been appointed to hear this message. We honor you, glorify you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Second Samuel 11, Second Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to be reading the whole text as we always do, and this is going to be from the New King James Version. The Bible declares to us this story, a familiar story, the story of David and Bathsheba, and says it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew they were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife.
and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. This is gospel testimony. There's so much gospel here to preach than we have time to declare it. For title, I have just one title, the Old Testament Gospel Hermeneutics. The Old Testament Gospel Hermeneutics. And I'm going to open this way. I'm a gospel preacher. I preach the gospel from both the Old and the New Testaments because the gospel is one message. It is a singular message and it has its particulars. It has its fundamentals. It has its issues, problems, and solution that has been proposed by God. Issues and solutions that were rehearsed by God in the different scripts that he wrote and dramatized in the life of particular people. And these people were regular sinners, just like you and me, just like the rest. But their life was lived to preach the particulars of the gospel. The Bible, the stories, are not just stories. So God was not reacting to how these people lived or what they did as to find something that could be useful to him. He, as the sovereign, is he who detected to them what and how they should live and experience according to the script that he determined, the script that he wrote. But the Old Testament is not like the New in the way that it relates or distills the same message. It has its own way in which God was preaching the gospel. God was not preaching as plainly as he did in the book of, say, Romans or Hebrews. He was preaching in shadows, in pictures, in story form, and using offensive stories that offend our sensibilities of righteousness, self-righteousness, and that for the offense of the gospel. And that means one could not and cannot understand God's message if they do not have the proper key to read and interpret it. And to that enters Jesus. The Lord said this to the Jews in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures. You studied them. And even diligently. For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. That's what Jesus said to the matter of 
the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus is saying he is the key that shares the light of understanding of all the scriptures, of all the stories. Those stories, all of them were written to testify of him. And that offended the Jews and still offends many professing Christians because they have no ability to see or read the person of Christ whose story is hidden in the life of the sinners that God used. And so many end up with a sinner. They end up doing a character assassination of the many sinners who are recorded in the Bible, and they miss the point. They miss Christ. But I'm standing on very solid ground on this matter because Jesus is he who said it. He said the scriptures testify of him. Behold, law in the book, it is written about me. I have come to do your will, O God. Yeah? So if anyone does not agree with me, then they have a problem with Jesus, not with me. This is not my hermeneutic. This is a Jesus-imposed hermeneutic. This is how we are supposed to understand the whole Bible. Also, a lot of professing Christians and preachers use the Old Testament for moralistic teaching. That is what the Jews did. And they were not benefited by it. Because Jesus said, you are still in your sins. <laughs> if you don't believe that I'm he of whom the scriptures testified of, you will die in your sins. The scriptures are not useful to you if they can't help you to see Jesus. They become just like any other book. And unconverted people love a moralistic message because it appeals to their flesh. Moralistic messages are the most preached messages in much of Christendom. But Paul came and said what? To the Jews who thought they had righteousness from their law-keeping. This is what Paul said in Romans 2, 17 to 22. Romans 2, 17 to 22, Paul said, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness by telling them things that they should not be doing. That's what they thought was the light. Don't do this, don't touch this, do not smell this, do not. That's what they thought was the light. An instructor of the foolish, first 20, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? 
You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul is saying, you're not different than the rest. You are committing and doing the very things that you're telling other people not to do. And that is saying, unless we find Christ, unless we find the gospel in these Old Testament stories, even the law, we have not been spiritually profited. We have not been made wise unto salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says. The gospel is Jesus. And where there's Jesus, there are also other moving parts that come with him. There is the matter of sin. There is the matter of law. There is the consequence of sin and law together, which is death. The matter of curse or curses. The matter of covenants. Pictured in marriage. Marriage, much of what you see as the teaching in the Old Testament about marriages is not about your marriage. It's not about my marriage. It is a gospel testimony. And yet people take these things and want to make them about themselves. The matter of covenant pictured in marriage. The matter of salvation, justification. And you can hardly work or read a text in the Old Testament and not find a testimony of the law. The function of the law. And its anticipation of its own demise, of its own coming to the end. The law carried instructions of its own death, of its own end by fulfillment in Christ. The law anticipated that it would come to an end. In the same Old Testament, you will find the Trinitarian aspect of salvation, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As in Abraham, Isaac, and Eliezer, God is not going to tell you that Abraham is a type of God the Father. It is your gospel, your hermeneutic that informs you of that. It is Abraham who is old. It is Abraham who has a son who needs a bride, Isaac. And it is Eliezer who is given the responsibility of going and looking for a bride for the son of Abraham who has all the inheritance of Abraham, the only son of Abraham. That's the Trinitarian aspect of salvation. You're not going to find that explained in John 2. You're going to find that in Romans. But it is there. The Holy Spirit gives us the hermeneutic. So you'll find the work and person of the Holy Spirit in Eliezer, going and fetching a bride for Isaac. Eliezer, a faithful servant of Abraham, he goes and he even refuses to eat the food when he visits Rebecca's family. And he says, 
I have to tell you about my errand. I have to tell you about my master. My master, Abraham, is rich and he has a son. So he declares the things of Christ as the Holy Spirit declares only the things of Christ. That's how you know that Elias is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to tell you that in John 15 verse 5. <laughs> but that's what people are looking for. They're thinking that the Holy Spirit is going to say, oh, by the way, Elias was the Holy Spirit. Let's go to this verse. There's no way. You cannot do that with the whole Bible. It's too big. And the testimony of Christ is so humongous that even John said, if all the things that were written of Christ were recorded, even the whole earth would not contain the number of books. So the way then to read things is to have a proper hermeneutic, a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way of reading things. So you see, the gospel depicted in institutions, in the feasts, in persons, in events, in things, in men, in women. And one who is not taught of God cannot see these things unless God opens their understanding. As what happened in the conversation on the road to Emmaus, the conversation between Jesus and Cleopas and some other unnamed person. This is what Luke said in Luke 24, verse 44 and 45. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the sounds concerning me. That's the hermeneutic. All things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the sounds, that means the whole Old Testament concerning him, not concerning you're not sinning. Not concerning, you're not sinning. And verse 45 says, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend, that they may see the things that were written concerning Christ. So do not argue with me then, those who want to argue with me about this. It frustrates some people that they cannot see the truth that God is speaking in the types and the stories. There's a very simple way. I did not go to college for this. There's a very simple way. You ask God to teach you and to show you how to comprehend the scriptures, to open your understanding, that you may see these spiritual realities. That's the only way to do it. That's how I do it. I ask God. So for those who don't like me, <laughs> please don't limit my understanding 
because of your own limitations. I have my own measure of grace that God has given me as he is pleased for the declaration of his message, for the edification of his people. I'm not doing this for my own sake. I'm doing this for the edification of God's people, those for whom the message that I preach has been given. I'm not preaching to everybody. These messages have their own recipients. It could be 10 people, it could be 15 people, it could be 50 people. Okay? So if you do not see these things, it's not my problem. And please do not cause me trouble. I already have too many things to deal with. <laughs> I have my sin to deal with. And thank God he put it away. But let me say this again before we get ready to go to our text. One who is not humble to learn cannot see these things. The book of James says, God gives grace to the humble. They will continue to argue in their hardness of heart, but that will not dissuade me because I see it clearly in the old as I see it in the new and many others as well who are taught of God see it. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. You cannot see it another way. This is the only way that makes sense. There's no teaching of the old that I've ever done that is contrary to the New Testament revelation of the gospel. Why? Because the New Testament is the key to read the old, to open the old. The new and the old both testify of the one and same thing, the one and same person, Christ Jesus. And just about all doctrines of salvation have their foundation in the Old Testament. All the doctrines of salvation, from redemption to propitiation to reconciliation to Romans chapter 4 to imputation, they are all Old Testament doctrines. They just shall live by faith. All Old Testament doctrines. And with that said, I want to take you to the story of David and Bathsheba. It is a very familiar story. A story that I have preached at least two or three times before, and we have the messages, the extended versions of this message is already there online. And this is a story that many moralists run to when they want to bash those that they deem as less moral than them as they measure them by their own righteousness. And in the process, they condemn themselves <laughs> to be profited. Listen to me, beloved. To be profited by the story or any story in the Old Testament, one must define who is the person who is the type of Christ in that story. If that is not done, then there's 
nothing really profitable that will come out of it. When I go and read an Old Testament story, if I cannot find Christ, I do not preach from it. And I keep coming back until God opens the scripture. So David is the type of Christ in our story. But David also is a sinner, so he carries a dual testimony. But he is not the only type of Christ in this story. God used or uses other actors, other players, as it were, to bring the other angles, different vantage points, to the one person, that is Christ, because not a single person who is a type is able to represent everything that Christ represented. So you're going to see multiple people who are types of Christ, even in the one story. So Christ alone is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows. Because in him all things consist. So David is a type of Christ. David is the shepherd man. We are introduced to him as the shepherd man. He is the man who is very skillful with the harp. He is the man after God's own heart. The man who is appointed king of Israel. The man who slews Goliath with a sling and a stone. The man who gets the king's daughter the man who will be under the Davidic covenant, the covenant of Christ. David is he who shall always have a son on his throne, and that means Christ Jesus. And in Ezekiel, God calls Jesus my servant David. God calls Jesus my servant David. Let me read that to you. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 20 to 24. Ezekiel says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder Butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them. Who is the shepherd who is over all the sheep? What did Jesus say in the book of John? That I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and they shall all come, that they may be all be under one shepherd. So that is in reference to Christ. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. (laughs) So Christ Jesus is called by God himself, my servant David. And in the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. 
And it does not mean David fathered Jesus according to the flesh. David did not go into the tent and then boom, Jesus came out. That's not what that is saying. That is a messianic title. It is connecting you to David, to what God said about David. It means Jesus traces his lineage through David and is the fulfillment of what God promised to do through David. The promises of God to David were promises of God through Christ. David was only but a shadow. So the exploits of David were the picture of Christ, the warrior king. And this king happened to be at home one evening, restless on his bed. Maybe he was having restless leg syndrome. <laughs> David should have been with Israel to war. He should have gone to war to lead his people, to lead his army. But he decided to stay at home. And this is what happened when he stayed at home. Second Samuel 11, verse 2. And that means we are in our story. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And that tells you that Bathsheba's house was close to that of the king. David did not have binoculars. And Bathsheba may have been very purposeful in the timing of her bathing. Her bathing was for ritual purification after the manner of women as the law commanded to be done. But it was also to advertise her charms because Bathsheba knew that she was beautiful. And so she did it in the open. She may have had an eye on the king. She had harbored some intentions toward the king. So the king was walking on the roof of the house. He had a balcony of sorts. And he beheld a beautiful woman and thought that he should inquire about her. David did not have a TV to watch the Super Bowl. So he was just chilling outside and a lot of mercy. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. So the king sent messengers with his message, and she came. And he slept with her. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived 
So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. That's verse 5. I am with child. I am so pregnant. And I am in trouble. She sent a text message to the king. She had been made pregnant by the king. That is another message of its own. Bathsheba has been made pregnant, not by the servant of the king, but by the king himself. So the king knew her. And she was found with child. Hear me? Someone slow down, slow down, and listen to what I'm saying. The king knew her. And she was found with the child of the king. What did Jesus say to those in Matthew 7 who would come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do wonderful things in your name, cast out demons, miracles, all these wonderful things in your name? Hear this in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Hear the king. Men who say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? They are seeking title with Jesus. They are seeking entrance with Jesus. And they are speaking about themselves. They're talking about themselves and what they have done. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never called you to my house as David called Bathsheba to his house and impregnated her. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. It's not like Jesus does not know these people. He is God. He knows everyone. He is saying, I never had an intimate spiritual relationship with you as the king. Because I am the king who makes fruitful. And so David will not deny responsibility of impregnating Bathsheba. Because he knew her. <laughs> and if you're in Christ, Christ will not deny you because he has impregnated you with his Holy Spirit. That is the manner of impregnation. It's not the way that people want to read them with their fleshly eyes. These are spiritual realities. The impregnation with Christ is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so we go back to 2 Samuel 12, verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. The crisis that the pregnancy brought required an immediate resolution. There was a crisis in the king's hands. So Uriah had to be brought back from the campaign against the Amorites. So David determined to legitimize the coming birth 
by bringing back Uriah so that he would have intimate relations with his wife as a cover-up because they did not have DNA testing then. But Uriah refused to go and be with his wife, saying his comrades were at war and he could not be out here enjoying himself with his wife. And so David went on to plan B. He went on to intoxicating Uriah with a lot of wine. But still to no avail, that did not work. And that tells you of the integrity of Uriah. And this is what trips up a lot of people because they do not know how to interpret Uriah. They do not know how Uriah fits in the scheme of salvation for a gospel testimony in the picture. So they get offended because they think they are Uriah. So they read the script wrong because you and I are not as faithful like Uriah was. Uriah was a man of high integrity and faithfulness. But that faithfulness and integrity is speaking to something greater than Uriah. Uriah was a servant of David. He was a loyal servant, a faithful servant, a servant of the king, as Moses was a faithful and loyal servant of God even a servant of Christ. Do you see the connection? And that means in this drama, Uriah stands for the goodness and righteousness of the law. Uriah could not be corrupted and so the law cannot be corrupted because the law is holy, righteous, and the commandment good. But Uriah is married to someone that the king wants. And the law is married by way of condemnation to one that the king, even the Lord Jesus Christ, loves. That's why he came down. He came down because he saw a beautiful bride. <laughs> Second Samuel 11, 14 to 21. I'm just going to give you kind of a summary here. But David was frustrated that his plans were not working. And so he decided to write a letter to his army commander, Joab, verse 14. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. You have to slow down when you read these things. You have to slow down. You have to slow down and slow down and work the details because a lot of people miss these things because they read too fast. The letter was written by the king and was sent by the hand of Uriah. And Uriah, in his faithfulness, did not open the letter that had instructions of his own death. 
Why did God not stop and tell Uriah to open the letter? Because this was God's script. It had to go as had been written. But Uriah is a type of the law. As the man married to the woman that the king loves, he must die and the instructions of his death are carried by the law itself. So he carried the letter that kills, the letter that exegeted the gospel testimony and the identity of the person of Uriah. You have to identify who Uriah is and you cannot identify, you cannot define who Uriah is until you define David as the type of Christ. You cannot. The letter that Uriah carried had instructions of his own death. It was the letter that kills. And that to say Uriah was a picture of the law. Picture of the ministry of death. Because it is the law that produces death because of sin. So the law anticipated that it will come to the end and that the bride will be taken by Christ. That's God's conversation. The law is right. The law is holy. The law is good. That's why people get offended at the death of Uriah. The law is good. The commandment is righteous. That's why people get offended when we tell them that we're not under the law and call us antinomians. They are still crying for Uriah. That's what they're doing because they don't get it. Verse 15, 2 Samuel 11. And he wrote in the letter, that's David, saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Uriah the Hittite died. That is gospel preaching. Moses died at the hands of of God on Mount Nebo. God is he who killed Moses. Uriah died at the hands of the king, at the instruction of the king, and the Lord died by fulfillment at the death of another king, at the instruction of another king in the line of David, Christ Jesus. Uriah was killed at the hottest part of the battle, that was the instruction of the king. And that hottest part of the battle is the cross of Christ. This is the hottest part of the battle that has ever happened in the salvation and in the history of mankind. The cross was the hottest place ever in terms of fighting against sin. The case of the Ammonites. I'm not going to develop the Ammonites. But they're there for a testament of the gospel. They are not just some crazy people. God is using them to preach something about the gospel. So Job 
David's army commander sent a courier, a messenger, with the news of the dead of Israel. And among them was Uriah the Hittite. Is, what, is that what the preachers are preaching? Our preachers of today are not preaching the death of Uriah. They are offended at the death of Uriah. They are offended at the ending of the law of Moses. And here David's response. The response of David was predictable because he has some other fish frying. He said the death is expected in the matter of war. So take it easy. And a little later, Bathsheba learned of the death of her husband. And after her days of mourning were ended, she moved in with the king and became his wife. What an offense to much of the religious people. And this is exactly what blinds people from seeing the real message in this story. Their self-righteousness blinds them to the heavens. Hear me, God's people. David must get what he wants. He is the king. Christ must get what he wants because he is the king. He must get the woman of his choosing, the bride that he wants. And he saw his bride on the rooftop, even from heaven. But David cannot get the wife as long as she remains married to Uriah. He has to find a way to eliminate him because David does not want a limping Uriah. He does not want an Uriah who is in a wheelchair. He does not want an Uriah who has clutches. He wants a dead Uriah. And so he eliminates him at war by instructions that he wrote. David cannot and could not and will not be married to Bathsheba as long as Uriah stood. And that to say Christ cannot be married to his bride as long as the covenant of the law stood. That's the point. This is why Uriah must die because David cannot marry Bathsheba unless Uriah is dead. And Christ cannot be married to his bride as long as the law stands. The law must die. The law must die, my friends. I don't care what your creeds and confessions say. This is the reason why people don't get this thing because they rely too much on the creeds and confessions. They do not rely on the Holy Spirit. You have to rely on the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual matters. Let us hear 
Paul explain the doctrine of it. There's a doctrine to this matter. Let's go to Romans 7, and we'll limit ourselves to verses 1 and 4. Romans 7, 1 to 4. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. As long as the husband lives. But if the husband dies, she is released. She is set free from the law of her husband. So Uriah is dead. And thus Bathsheba is set free, she is released from the law of her husband to be married to David. So then, verse 3, so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. But Sheba was not married to David until after Uriah had died. That's what the text says. I'm not making it up. Yes, she slept with David, but she did not get married to David until after the fact, until after Uriah had died. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. You must die to the law. There has to be a death. That separates you from the law. And all believers have died to that husband through the death of Christ. To that husband of Uriah through the death of Christ. That you may be married to another. You're not remaining single. (laughs) No, you're not. God is not into singles ministry. You're going to have to be married. You're either married to Uriah or you're married to Christ. You're either married to the law or you are married to Christ, okay? That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should, be, that we should bear fruit to God. And that's why Bathsheba got pregnant, and she bore more children than just the one that died, which we are about to expound. So, in the matter of gospel understanding, John the Baptist bears the same testimony as Moses, as Uriah. When the Christ has come, John the Baptist says, he who has the bride is what? Is the what? Is the groom. Therefore, this joy of mine has been made complete. I must Decrease, he must increase. What does that mean? John the Baptist must be beheaded. John the Baptist represented what? He was more than a prophet. John the Baptist was a Levite. His father was Zechariah, who was a priest. So John the Baptist represented the law and the prophets. So he was a mediator of the law. And Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Which means they ended with him. 
they ended with John. And that is why John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. John the Baptist was a righteous man in the likes of Uriah. Not righteous in the matter of Christ, but he was a man of integrity. He was a true man of God. But he was beheaded by Herod. This is how God preached it. And this was not by accident. If Jesus wanted, he could have saved, delivered John from the hands of Herod. But he did not. Even John, at some point, expected Jesus to deliver him. John the Baptist sent people, his people, to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would deliver him from the hands of Herod. But Jesus did not deliver him. Why? Because John, representing the law, must come to the end because the man to whom the bride belongs has come, Christ Jesus. So God came and was not happy with David. But that does not mean that God was ignorant of the matter. God is he who ordains all things that come to pass. So God was 100% behind the whole thing. Let's keep hearing. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, now we're spilling over to 2 Samuel chapter 12 for the continuation of the story. God despised Nathan the prophet with a rebuke and punishment on David. Sometime after the birth of Bathsheba's son, Nathan the prophet came and told David a story of a rich man who, in spite of having everything, Store a poor neighbor's only you, a female lamb, to provide a feast for a guest. This rich man took the only lamb that this poor neighbor had to provide a feast for his guest. And David, enraged at hearing this, pronounced that the man who would do such a despicable thing ought to die. And in saying that, David had essentially pronounced his own death sentence. David must die because David is the man. But does David die? And if not, why did he not die? Because the law required for him to be put to death for both the murder and adultery that he committed. And this is according to Leviticus 20, verse 10, and we'll go there to read it. This is what the law said in respect of adultery. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, which means both David and Bathsheba, shall surely be put to death. They shall surely be put to death. 
That is the pronouncement of the law. But did they die? So these are the things that you have to interrogate. Is you are reading these stories, and if you are going in there for moralistic teaching, you never, I swear to God, you never get this far. You never get this far. You're just going to leave people guilty and never give them a solution. Let us hear Nathan's response to David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 to 9. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man <laughs> that says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Do you hear what God said? I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. This is in reference to Christ. That's what God is saying. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, both houses, they were given to him. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah, the Hittite, with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. <laughs> there are a lot of gospel stuff. You are the man. You are the man. David, you are the man. And Nathan was not saying, you are the cool guy. Because that's how we use it in our time. Oh, you are the man. You are the cool guy. No, Nathan is saying, you are the man who did this and you deserve to die. Second Samuel 12, 10 to 11. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So people don't know how to turn this around so that they can see the gospel. They're only looking at it one way, just running like that without ever considering that this thing is saying a whole lot more stuff. Nathan says the sword shall never depart from your house, from the house of David. And that is a full message of its own. And this is more than the swords of men made of iron. This is God's curse. God is narrowing and channeling the curse from Adam, from Adam through the house of David. Hear me, someone. I'm going to repeat that. The sword, the curse, shall not depart from God's house. He's saying the curse on God's people has now been channeled to be in the house of David. It's being channeled through the house of David. This is gospel preaching. There are two things that cannot depart from the house of David. 
Number one, the scepter of righteousness shall not depart from Judah. And that was the pronouncement by Jacob on Judah in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And also, the sword shall not depart from the house of David, from the house of Judah. Because the house of David is the house of Judah. So the sword is for a curse. The curse of sin shall always be in the house of David. But going where? That's the question. Waiting for who? What is it doing in David's house? Because it is waiting for the greater son of David, Christ Jesus, to remove it through the suffering of the cross. Christ goes on the cross because the sword that came through the house of David was after him. That's what put him on the cross, the curse of our sin. Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that's the connection. The curse follows the house of David, and it is removed on Mount Calvary. Yeah? Verse 11, second Samuel 12, we're almost, almost done. We'll see. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. The Lord of adversity against Christ from his own people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. The people who caused Jesus the most trouble were those from his own house. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. <laughs> Absalom fulfilled that. And we may have already preached on Absalom. We have some wonderful message on Absalom. What Absalom represented. Absalom the most handsome man in Israel, beautiful, and yet was ruthless. A beautiful person should not be ruthless. Absalom was beautiful and a killer. Why? Because the law is good and righteous, but it condemns. So Absalom goes and takes his father's concubines and he sleeps with them. We're going to have to get there when we get to 2 Samuel. Because right now we're working through 1 Samuel. And we intend to go to 2 Samuel. So hopefully in the next two years. <laughs> but hear this. 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? Why? You can't just put away sin like that. That is not how it works, Nathan. That is corruption. That is unfair. But is it corruption? Is it unfair? 
Because all who are angry at David, that he killed Uriah, want justice to be done. We want justice. They have their placards. We want justice. They want David to be condemned. They want him stoned. Like those who brought the woman caught in adultery in John 8. We caught this woman in the very act. Now Moses in the law said such a one must be stoned. They have their placards. They want the woman to be stoned. The lawmongers want David to be stoned. The whole religious world is up in arms against David. And I say this truthfully. Because they think they are better people than David. Because that would satisfy their self-righteousness. That is why they are offended at me even when I say this story is not about moralism but for gospel preaching. They are trusting in their own righteousness, thinking that they are not worse offenders. And Jesus said, let him who has not seen cast the very first stone. Why should a man who killed an innocent man just get that for a sentence? Walk away like that. That is offensive. And that's the offense of the gospel. Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Go home, kick back, and eat your cheerios. What is that saying? It is saying God will not impute your sin to you. See the development of the story. See where it began. It began with the king on his rooftop, eyeing this beautiful woman, calling this beautiful woman, sleeping with this beautiful woman, killing the husband of the beautiful woman, having a baby, and here we are, Nathan coming and saying to David, you shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. God did not impute the sin of David to him or to Bathsheba, a sinner. That is what God is preaching. The matter of a sinner standing before him is in God's determination. David and Bathsheba shall not die, but live in spite of their sin. If you are in Christ, you shall not die. You shall live not because you become a better person, but because God says, you shall not die. I have put away your sin. So, David and Bathsheba shall live for more than one reason. Number one, so that God would pen this for the church through the experience of David. Because Paul is going to borrow this when he writes his gospel treatise in Romans chapter 4. Psalm 32, 1 to 5 was written on account of David and Bathsheba. Psalm 32, let's go there. A psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. (laughs) Whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. David was not lying. He said, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. That's telling the truth. I'm a sinner. I'm a great sinner. I'm telling the truth. Tell the truth. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. But was the sin of David covered? How was it covered? Who covered it? Because he said, blessed is the man to whom sin is not imputed, whose sin is covered. Covered by who? Because it has to be covered. There has to be a covering. Someone has covered. Second Samuel 12, verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. The child born to David and Bathsheba shall surely die. But why is the child dying? He is not the one who committed adultery. Why is the child dying? Why are people not offended that the child is dying? They're only offended at David taking Uriah because of their self-righteousness. They're not offended at the child dying who did nothing wrong. Beloved, God does not just forgive sin. Someone must pay. So a child born to David and Bathsheba must die. That's what God said. So the Lord came and smote this child and he died. God killed the son who was born to Bathsheba and David. The firstborn of David and Bathsheba was killed by God for something that he did not do. The child had done nothing wrong. But is he the child who caused God not to impute sin? Is his death the death that caused David and Bathsheba to live? Is he the child who took the sin of his parents? No. There was another child, born of David and Bathsheba, who was fit for this. Some of the women... <laughs> If you go and read the genealogy, some of the women in the genealogy of Jesus were very suspicious and scandalous. And it's God who put them there for an offense. Do you think God was not aware? Could he have not found some other faithful woman to put in the genealogy? No, he loves the scandalous ones for the scandal of the gospel, for the offense of the gospel. 
Christ Jesus is the son of David and Bathsheba. Through the line of Solomon. In the genealogy. And this is the son who must surely die to put away his sin. That is why the greatest son of David came and said, The son of man shall go the way that was appointed him, the way of death. The way that was prophesied by Nathan to David and said, Your son, born to you, shall surely die. It is that son who shall be the covering of your sin. The sin of David imputed to Christ. And the righteousness of Christ imputed to David. And David is a blessed man. That's gospel preaching, beloved. So the matter of imputation of sin and righteousness is what God was preaching in the story. But it offends all the self-righteous people who think they are obeying Jesus by the things that they are doing or not doing. It offends them. They think they are righteous because they are still married to their high school sweetheart. My friends, you cannot open the doors of heaven because you are married to your high school sweetheart. That's foolish teaching. They think they have not done the sin of David. And so they want this story to be preached as a moralistic story that speaks to their own things. But to do that is to miss the point by a million miles. It is not well between you and God just because you did not do what David did. You did not do this sin or that sin. That is deception. That is, the, that is not the basis of your standing before God. The basis of your standing is only by the righteousness that God has freely imputed to you. The righteousness of Christ. That is the only basis. And let me finish this way. And we'll go to Genesis 39 to finish this. To yet another scandalous story. <laughs> I won't dwell on it for too long because I already did a very long message on it. But I thought it would be useful addition to what I have said. The story of Joseph and Miss Potiphar. And I'm going to ask you for purposes of jogging your memory and bringing you to speed. I'm going to ask you this question. You have to consider this question. Because if you don't ask these questions, you cannot read gospel out of the stories. Why did Miss Potiphar not go to jail? Why did she not go to prison? Given what she had done. Remember with David and Bathsheba, we asked the question, why did David not die? Why did Bathsheba not die? And we learned that the son of David was going to die. And we learned that 
David was a blessed man to whom sin was not imputed. That's why he did not die. But Miss Potiphar was also another sinner. Why did she not die? Why did she not go to prison? If, they, if Joseph went to prison, why did Miss Potiphar not go to jail for something that she wanted to do? Genesis 39, 10 to 18. Let's go there. I'm going to read verses 10 to 18, Genesis 39. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Miss Potiphar wanted to have some quality time with Joseph. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of them, and none of the men of the house was inside. See, Miss Potiphar was a stay-at-home mom. Don't think that stay-at-home mom people are righteous people. Okay? Miss Potiphar is just telling you that they are into shenanigans too. Hear me. That she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See that he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me and cried out with a loud voice. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me. Underline that if you have a Bible. And he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. She kept his garment with her until Joseph's master came back home. Then she spoke to him with words like this, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So the conversation now is about the garment, the garment, the garment that was left with me. Miss Potiphar's story did not have a witness. The servants were not there. She only had one witness. The garment that was left in her possession. Do you hear me, someone? She only had one witness. The garment of Joseph. When Mr. Potiphar came back home, what did Miss Potiphar present for her righteousness? For the vindication of her own righteousness. Was it not the garment of Joseph? Joseph, the righteous man, as the picture of Christ. And you and I are not Joseph, by the way, because a lot of the moralists want to say, oh, you should run away from sin like Joseph did. But the problem is, you are not Joseph. You are Miss Potiphar. You are not Joseph. Joseph is Christ. He is the one who leaves behind his garment of righteousness, the garment of vindication. 
If you think you are Joseph, for whom did you go to prison in judgment? <laughs> you are not Uriah. You are Bathsheba. You are counted among the bride of Christ. Christ is your vindication. Because he is the son of David who died. You are the sinner who needs the garment of Christ for the vindication from your many sins. Thus, Joseph left his garment not because he had been overpowered by Miss Potiphar. Joseph was a very young and strong man. He could not have been overpowered by Miss Potiphar. He left it for the gospel testimony because God was preaching the Christ who freely gave himself, who freely gives his righteousness. But Joseph went to jail for the sin that he did not commit to make payment for the freedom that Miss Potiphar was enjoying outside of prison. He went to prison in the place of Miss Potiphar. And that is imputation of sin. That is imputation of righteousness. Joseph was imputed with the sin of Miss Potiphar, hence the danger. And Miss Potiphar remained out of the prison doors and saved her marriage because of the garment that Joseph left in her possession for her vindication. This is the gospel that I'm preaching, beloved. This is what God means by these stories. So if people want to argue with me, because they don't listen to a lot of my messages. They just go and they find something that they have no understanding of. Then they want to argue as if they know anything. No, they don't. They're just exposing that they don't know what they're talking about. Okay? This is God's truth. We have not violated God's gospel in any of these stories. And it is free. And I'm not going to stop. Because I have more than I have time to write and preach. Good night, everyone. <laughs> and thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning in and providing me company and praying for me. I had just one audience right here with me. My wife is sitting right here with me, just hearing me ranting. But God be praised for his understanding that he has freely given us to see the matter of Christ in our salvation. And be praying for tomorrow's message. We're in Romans chapter 5. And I believe we have a most wonderful message that the Lord gave me to work on today. So God be praised. Let's go before him and ask for his blessing again. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words of illumination of the scriptures from stories that offend many, but stories that are testimony of our salvation, testimony of Christ in the matter of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, how David as a king 
took the wife of Uriah and killed him by a letter that he had written that he should be killed in the battlefield in the hottest part of the battle, that on Uriah dying, David would get married to his bride, Bathsheba, and bear children unto God. And in the line of David and Bathsheba, we found our own Lord Jesus Christ coming through the line of Solomon. We thank you for the testimony that, David, you shall not die because the Lord has put away your sin, but the son born to you shall surely die. And that is the whole testimony of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, that the son of David has taken upon the curse that has been put in David's house. The sword that shall never depart from David's house has departed because of the Christ who has made curse for us. We honor you, glorify you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.